Welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange Podcast. Stories by leaders for leaders to help you raise the bar on your own excellence to release the potential inside of you. Now, here's today's podcast. Greetings, it's Hugh Ballou, and we're back on the Nonprofit Exchange with yet another wonderful guest today. It's um, it's the equinox. We just passed the equinox in September, where the days and nights are about the same. I'm in Lynchburg, Virginia, and my guest today is uh, Robert Stack, who is sitting in his home in Princeton, New Jersey. Robert, welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange, and tell people a little bit about yourself. Well, thank you very much for inviting me uh, to your to your program in your home. Um, my name again is Robert Stack, <clears throat> and I'm the CEO and founder uh, of Community Options. Uh, Community Options is now a 30-year-old uh, corporation. We were incorporated in February of 1989, and our mission is to develop housing and employment for people with significant disabilities. And so, Robert, um, you've done this for 30 years. What did you do before that? Um, I was the um, I was the deputy director over institutions for people with developmental disabilities in the state of New Jersey. And that was running a, a bunch of institutions <clears throat> for people that uh, lived in the uh, facilities throughout New Jersey, throughout the uh, several areas. And then prior to that, I was the executive director in my 20s. I was the executive director of United Cerebral Palsy of New Jersey. So you've got quite a bit of experience in this field. Tell me why you founded this nonprofit and why you do this work? Um, well, that's a great question. I founded this nonprofit out of need. Um, basically, I worked at United Cerebral Palsy. I got a real good flavor for how nonprofits worked, being the, the executive director of United Cerebral Palsy of New Jersey. And I saw the great things that they did, and I saw the things that weren't that great. And um, I didn't... And I, w- I kind of was, was, was trying to figure out why I couldn't grow the way I wanted to grow. Uh, and then I realized that the charter confined me geographically. And I realized that there was just a limited amount of, of uh, wiggle room that I could have. And, you know, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. Uh, the person who was the director of developmental disabilities for the state of New Jersey said, gee, uh, Robert, we have all these institutions and we need to start figuring out how to close them. Would you come and uh, be my deputy over the institutions and we'll start talking about a phase out plan. So I came and I worked for for him and I worked in charge of all the institutions. I had about, um, I had uh, 8,000 staff and about a $300 million budget, but it was a state bureaucracy and it was very um, confining as well. But what I realized then, Hugh, was that, that the, the, um, there weren't a lot of, there were a lot of people in the institutions, but there weren't a lot of agencies that were nonprofit that were ready to provide the home and the delivery of care to the people that needed it. There weren't a lot of nonprofits to help them find jobs. There actually weren't a lot of people that were, there were the, there were, there were very small number of people. Uh, there was an association for retarded citizens founded in the fifties. There was the United Cerebral Palsy founded in the fifties. There was an Easter Seals founded about the same time. There was a there was a Goodwill, and um, that was essentially uh, the the real. Uh, and then there was some small mom and pop organizations. So 
So I thought about it a lot and I said, gee, who's going to take care of these people that are really have significant levels of need, people that are blind and deaf, people that are in wheelchairs and blind, people that are autistic and blind, people that are just significantly autistic, people with all kinds of various needs. Who's going to take care of them? And I knew I could. And I kept on trying to work with providers, explaining to them how they could do this. And then I said, you know what? I'm going to go through it again and I'm going to start my own. So I called my friends and I said, I'm going to start a nonprofit. And they said, have, knock yourself out. And that's when the whole thing started. Wow. It, this, it's a unique experience founding a nonprofit. I've done that. I have friends that have done it. And I'm hoping Center Vision will be the legacy that continues long after I'm here, or at least as long after I want to work. <laughs> and uh, so you founded it. How long before you were able to put some staff into place, like get an executive director and some of those key staff? Well, I founded it in 1989 in February. Um, I, and when I received, and I hired myself as the, um, as the uh, uh, CEO of this small grant. And after a very short period of time, not even a month, um, I saw the opportunity to help deinstitutionalize people. So I started working on that. And then we developed a contract, and then I just made myself the CEO and president of Community Options. And you have you have a staff now that, that runs the organization. Yeah, I went from that from I literally would answer the phone in my house before they had we I, they had we had cell phones, but they were more 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 analogs phones. But I just had a phone on the wall, and I would answer the phone, you know. Community options, please hold. I'll see if Robert's available. That was at my kitchen table. And then I had a really nice business card. It said community options. And I had my home address. And that was in fifth, that was Thompson Street, New Jersey. And then um, I had four or five staff working in my kitchen. And that was in 1991 of November. And then we, then, then we got the first contract to start uh, uh, placing people with severe disabilities because the, the governor of New Jersey decided he wanted to close one of the institutions. So there was a group of people that they all took out, but there was a group of people no one would take. And I said, I'll take those people. And I did. And I found them jobs and housing, et cetera, and got the, and bought the houses, et cetera. Wow. That was, that was terribly difficult. I had to take, because I had to hire staff, I had to buy houses and I had no money. <clears throat> so I had to um, take a second mortgage out of my home. I had every credit card from diners to American Express, to Visa, to MasterCard, to Discover, to anything you could possibly think of to keep the place floating until I could start getting everything together. And uh, that was that was a tough time. Um, and uh, but it worked out. Um, so we, we 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 struggled for a lot. I remember hanging on to an old 286 computer. We had no real internet at the time. So, wow! Yeah, those are the days they called it electronic mail, and it was internal in a multi-user. <clears throat> then it went to the internet after that. And then I, I actually created handles for everyone. Like I was CO one uh, for community options one for my internet for for AOL. Every one of my staff went on AOL. I had everyone in America, America on uh, America Online, and um, you've got mail, and uh, we did it that way, and uh, we we progressed in in time after that. 
Fascinating, fascinating. Um, what is the, give us some of the biggest challenge you've seen. You've worked with other organizations uh, inside. You've interfaced with some in the work you're doing now. What is the biggest challenge founders face? I mean, you've had a lot of challenges, but you, you put yourself out on the limb. Now, some people do that and they don't succeed, so they lose everything. So what's the biggest challenge founders have in, in getting a nonprofit launched and then growing it to be sustainable? Well, I think that you have to, it's not, a, it's not an eight hour day. Uh, it's not even a 15 hour day. It's a 20 hour day. You're constantly, constantly clamoring to try to figure out how to do it. I also firmly believe any nonprofit that wants to survive, the only way they're gonna survive is they have to have a very simple mission statement. Ours is to develop housing and employment. IBMs, what are they? They make business machines. So that's their mission statement. It was their mission statement in the you know, 30s. It's the same thing. Even now, they make business machines. Our mission is the same. However, even though our mission is the same, one of the things I, I, I pushed for is uh, diversity relative to funding. I have funding from, and, and what a lot of nonprofits are afraid to do is to get out of their comfort zone. I was in New Jersey and Pennsylvania, but then I was in Texas. Then I was in South Carolina. Then I was in Tennessee. And I just kept on. And, then I, and now we're in, we're, we're in a, a variety of states and there's different parts. There's pocket, federal government funding. There's the Department of Education. There's the Department of Labor. There's uh, the Department of Health and Human Services. And then there's local funding. And then there's foundations. And uh, there's getting people to give money. And then you have to pony up your own money, too, if you want to survive. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a point where people keep putting their own money and they need to learn how to get other money. And there's a lot of barriers. So you obviously didn't have the reluctance to go and seek outside funding. And that's, that's so crucial. So share with people. That's one of the biggest obstacles I see, especially with early stage nonprofits, is people say, I'm just not good at asking for money and or I don't want to ask people for money. How did you bridge that gap? And maybe you had didn't have those narratives in your brain. I'm not asking people for money for me. I'm asking people for money to help somebody with a disability. To me, it's a totally different thing. It was like when, when I was a kid and I would go around with the, 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 uh, the, the, the uh, canisters for Jerry's kids. I wasn't afraid to knock on the door because I wasn't asking the money for me. I wasn't going to get a bicycle with that money. I was going to give that money to Jerry so Jerry could fund some basic research so they could cure muscular dystrophy. I look at it the same way. Every dollar we get goes to community options. And so I'm not afraid. And, and, and again, um, the worst thing, the, I have a motto. My motto is nothing ever failed because too many people said no, it's because not enough people were asked. Whoa, that's a good soundbite. Doesn't fail because too many people said no, it's because not enough people were asked. I guess salespeople are motivated by no because they, they think the yes is just coming if they get enough no's. I agree, and I also agree that people hate to say no more than once. So I'll say, can you contribute to my organization? I don't have any money. Can you be a member of, of, of our volunteer group? I don't have the time. Can you give me the name of someone I can call and use you as a reference to, to talk to? If they say no to all three, then I move on. 
but they hate to say no more than once. So usually they'll say, well, you know, if you call Mary Smith, maybe she'll help you. Or how many hours does it include the volunteer? Or what do you want me to do? Hmm. And you have to be ready for that. Yes. Do you find that people, um, I, I had a um, meeting last night, a board meeting with the Lynchburg Symphony Orchestra Board. And um, a part of the presentation was our development officers, uh, our committee chair and our, our development person on staff. And they were talking about how the board bridges those gaps. Who do you know and how can you introduce us? And they used a case study where I was going to talk to somebody, but I didn't know the person. So one of them introduced me and then I had a, a much better conversation because there was that transferal of the relationship, which is so, so key. But we were, we were talking about um, a symphony. Why would people give money? Well, well, they wouldn't give money if they don't come. So it was centered around a building relationship, but let's give people the experience. And by the way, we do, one of our revenue streams is ticket sales. And as you know, orchestras don't cover the cost, not even half of it with ticket sales, but we do cultivate as a cultivation piece for donors. So in this process, um, most people, I mean, you knew something about it because you'd worked with other charities and you had probably given a presentation or two in your life. And, and so I find that we're not very good at telling people why it's important, why we exist and why it's important. We want to go into the weeds and tell them everything we do, the what, but we don't talk about the why. And then we really don't quantify the impact of what those dollars are going to create. So how did you create those, those pieces of a presentation to help you break through to get funding? Um, you know, my father, God rest his soul, was a milkman. And when he sold milk and he knocked on the door, he kept on talking to the person that answered the door. And he kept on saying to them, well, do you know Mary? And do you know Pete? Or do you, did you ever live in Hazelwood? Or did you ever live in this part of Pittsburgh? Or did you ever live in that part of Pittsburgh? And so he found some, figured out something that he could relate to that they both had common knowledge of. The same, with me, it was a very easy subject because it's disability. Everyone in their life has been touched by somebody with a disability. So that's the first question I say. And, and again, if you're talking about a symphony, it could be, have you ever experienced the, the joy, the euphoria of going to a symphony? And so most people would say yes. Some people would say not really. Or I would say back to me, I'd say, have you ever, do you, do you know of anybody that has autism or anybody that has a developmental disability, Down syndrome? And they'll say, oh, well, my aunt had Down syndrome or my, my cousin has, or, or my, my child has Down syndrome or my child has autism. So that's the start of the conversation. Or when I go to school, I see somebody there who might have a disability or my son talks about it. So the first thing is to relate what, who they know. And then I say, do you ever wonder what happens to them when they grow up? Do you wonder who takes care of them? Do you, do they, I mean, we miraculously grow up and we move out and get jobs. What do people with disabilities do? Then I have them think about that part. And then I start to, but I, you're right. I don't get down into the weeds because it's too complicated. You just start with people with disabilities. And I point out, and I don't even know if this is true. I don't know if this is true. I've heard this, but I say it. I say the word handicap came from the word cap in your hand. That that was the etymology, meaning beggar. And people with disabilities don't want to beg. They want a job. 
They don't want people to feel bad for them. They don't want people to pity them. They want people to empower them. You can help me empower people with disabilities. Wow. Wow. That's the, you're, I can feel your passion when you talk about that. Um, I've worked externally. I worked internally with megachurches for 40 years. But part of my job when I was there um, was helping build systems. And we have really good work we do. We have really good people, but sometimes we don't put them in good systems so they really can't function. Um, that's would describe 95% of the boards I've worked with on nonprofits. They, they're good people, they've got a worthy mission, and they've got a good leader, but they really don't have a system to function. So as you were starting this, how did you grow it in terms of the leadership piece and the board functioning piece? How, how did you grow it and was building a strategic plan part of that? Well, it was, a, it was the building the strategic plan came towards the end, but I'm going to be honest with you. The anomaly here, there is a huge anomaly here, and I'm not traditional. And some of the things I'm going to say, all of the, um, the traditional nonprofits would say I'm doing it wrong. Number one, in my 30 years, I've had three chairmen. That's it. Mm. Number two, in my 30 years, I've only had one treasurer, same guy. Mm. Um, uh, no, and, and number three, I don't have board limits. Um, they can they can stay as long as they want, but if they but it's not the Hotel California. They can check out. They can they they can they can check out any time they want. But they but they can leave if they're not doing something. And um, you know we'll just say well you know it's time to move on. We don't have set. I've I've also. You know, I've written, I wrote my own bylaws and I went against them and I showed them with two attorneys now and everything, but our bylaws are broad enough that you could pretty much translate a lot into them. My suggestion to any new person who's opening up a nonprofit, don't create your own bureaucracy. Don't create your own uh, uh, hurdles that you have to jump over. And always beware of unintended consequences. Because unintended consequences, if you say this one thing, then it can it can it can jeopardize what you're going to do for the next several years. So you have to keep the 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 the, uh, the bylaws wide enough that you can drive a truck through them. Wow, that's, that's wise. And 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 I don't put anyone on my board that I don't trust with everything. That's super important. Well, I, I tell I tell leaders whether they're hiring staff or bringing on board members. It's the same kind of vetting for me because it's better not to have somebody than to have the wrong person. And one person can infect the whole team. So talk, talk about that, the onboarding process. You obviously invite people, you said you trust, so there's a relationship piece that goes before that so you can understand who they are and what their values are and their principles. Well, let's take you. You seem like a nice guy. I've met you today and we talked once or twice before. I know a friend who you know. I have a couple contacts you do. So let's just say we continue the conversation. And I say, you know, what about this and what about that? And it turns out we do have very com commonplace values. And you happen to have a reason to be involved in this mission. So to be a relative, a friend, somebody you knew, somebody that affected you with disabilities. I'll ask you to come on the board for one year. And then I'll have my chair decide whether he wants to invite you after that year. And after the one year, you're basically an orientation period. So we're going to see what you can do and what commitments you want to make and whether you're going to show up 
for all four of the meetings during the whole year or whether you're not and whether you're going to contribute and whether you're because we don't want people to come on the board to just put their name on a piece of letterhead. That does happen. I find that people want to be on a symphony board, just have, have it on their resume or, or the opera or whatever. There's, there's, there's nonprofits in each community, community foundation, chamber of commerce. There's people who want to be on the board because it's good for their career, but they kind of skim by and don't do a whole lot. Um, so in that one year that you're, you're trying each other out, that person's trying out the board and you're trying them out. What are the, what are the things you look for to see if they're going to be a high functioning board member? Well, I look at their, I, I don't bring a person on a board unless they're going to, unless they have a profession or a reason to contribute to the organization. So let's just, the, my last board member I just brought on, she happened to be a retired physician from, from who? From the World Health Organization. So I have some issues of, of medical needs where I need some expertise that's pro bono to look at some of our medical programs for people with very severe disabilities. So I asked her to come on, I asked her to chair this committee, and I asked her to write a report. She's working on that now. And we'll see how that works out. And if it does, then we'll see what happens in the future. Um, I don't, and another thing, this is really going to go to, this is the antithetical to any kind of uh, things you've heard from everybody. I don't ask for money. I encourage it. I ask them to talk to people. But I have, the, the truth of the matter is, I am the CEO of Community Options. Our budget right now is 200, it'll be, this year it'll be about $240 million. That's by July. $240 million. We'll have $4.5 million excess over deficiency. That's a pretty substantial amount of money. I don't, so I'm, I'm not gonna say to you, Hugh, would you be on my board? And you say, oh, well, because I need you because I need to figure out how to connect with media. I need to connect with journalists. I need to connect with getting our mission out. But can you give me $25,000? No. Huh? Really? That's not going to happen, in my opinion. I'm not the Met. My, my, my advice to people is don't have delusions of grandeur. Maybe someday I'll be able to do this, but I'm not the Met. I'm not Princeton University, and I'm certainly uh, not, uh, not uh, you know, the, the panache of, you know, uh, make a wish. Uh, however, I, I take umbrage to it in the sense that I think that providing living for a person for their entire life to provide a job for a person where he can actually work and feel responsible is a lot more important than um, having lunch with Daryl strawberry. <laughs> um, but, 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 but people, the connect, the panache or the cachet of, of those kinds of organizations are there. So when I get people to come on my board, I want them to work and help and contribute I also, the, one of the other things I do, I say, can you do me a favor? We have 5,500 staff. The majority of them are people that work day in, day out, providing care to people with disabilities. Will you work side by side with one of those people for a day? I want you to experience why we do this. And if they don't really want to do that, I'm not really that interested in them as well. I want them to know anyone can read a mission, anyone can recite a mission, anyone can even memorize a mission. But if they don't live the mission at least once in a while to remember why the whole thing is, 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 is doesn't make any sense. <clears throat> That's fascinating. Um, 
240 million this year. That's a substantial amount of cash flow. And I'm sure the, the um, amount of impact that you have is pretty large. Um, we do teach leaders that all board members should be donors because we feel like there's a commitment level that comes with that, that, that is over and above. Plus, um, we know there's a lot of foundations that ask you at the very beginning when they're you're submitting a grant application if 100% of your board donates. So we do, define, we do find that that's a barrier to getting some of the kinds of arts grants that we want to go after with the, with the symphony, for instance. Well, I think it's I think it's good, and to, quite frankly, the majority of all, in fact, all of our board does donate. But it's not you, we're not I'm not selling a board seat, as you know the New York Metropolitan Museum of Art would say, "Give me fifty thousand dollars and you can come on our board." I don't do that it that way. My point though is, if as I said to my board, because we had hired a consultant and he suggested that, and I said to my I said to my board. There's, there's, there's 11 of us on this board right now. If everyone gave $10,000, that would not even pay for two months overtime in central Pennsylvania. <laughs> so the impact is, is, it's like, as I say, it's like trying to get drunk on a shot of whiskey in a swimming pool. It, you, it, it's, it, it doesn't, it's. <laughs> you mean, that's pretty diluted. Yeah. So that's the same with the money that they give. So. I want them to. I want them to contribute. But the other thing is, I want them to be ambassadors and introduce me to people of means, and that has happened. Sure, sure, sure. Um, so there's there's uh, there's lots of opinions on that, and so I won't uh, I won't arm wrestle you today on that. There's everybody chooses to run um, their board um, the way it's the best for the organization. Um, so in your bylaws, you appoint board members. Is, is I hear that correctly? No, they're 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 elected technically, but you know I bring on board. I've never had anyone not say, "Okay, we vote for them." So you know, it's the bylaws say they they're elected. So it's not. A, I'll say to my chairman, "Here's Hugh. I like him on the board." And then the chairman would say, "Does everyone accept you to be on the board?" And they all say yes, and then he's on. So it would work like that. Well, I passed that one. Yeah, I um I um I got elected the president of the symphony board. I wasn't there. I wasn't even on the board, but I had. Oh Lord! I wasn't even on the board. I was. I was um, a consultant. I really am not a consultant. <laughs> I'm. I'm a different model. I'm an insultant to a resultant. Um, so I, I, it's it's a whole been a whole whole transformation. And like you, I don't I don't follow standard procedure. Uh, a solution map is my model of a strategic plan. And I, I, I don't even attend meetings that have agendas because they're so low functioning. A conductor, I'm, I'm a 40-year conductor. Um, a conductor right. never run, runs a rehearsal with us, an agenda. We, we work toward outcomes. So I run meetings with, uh, with uh, deliverables, not agenda. So it, it, it really transforms the whole culture into a high functioning. And, and as I find that the, uh, the planning, the planners are the doers and the planning and the and the board need to go together or else we've cut them off at the knees and they're never going to step up to their work. So how would you talk about the, you talked a little bit about it, but rating your board of how, how well it functions and how did you arrive at that point? Arrive at the point of, um, I, I don't, um, there was a lot of evolution occurred and I think that, uh, that a lot of education has to happen. 
But I, sp I think that the board spending a lot of time with the people that we support is important and, and our mission is very important. And you have to give them something to do for real. We have a strong audit committee. We have a strong executive committee. Um, we have a, we, we, we have a, now we have a medical committee. We had, a, we had a strategic planning group. We developed a strategic plan. We had them all work in small groups and they are also able to bring on other people that are non board members to help them with, with pulling this together. And then we make sure that the meeting is run by my chair for sure. And he's an absolute volunteer. The chairman of my board, um, he is a, um, he's a retired senior executive from a, from a very large company and he knows how to run a meeting. He's been around the block and uh, he, and he encourages uh, participation. And his major thing that he says to the board is you have to be generative. We as a board should be generative. We should not be reactive. We should say we should come up with ideas and plans on where we should move forward. What is that word, generative? Generative. Meaning you, you generate. Yes, to generate, to, uh, to, to, uh, to, to, to be proactive, I guess. Yeah, I'm just trying to be clear. Somebody called me a degenerate sometime. I just want to make sure. Yeah, it's, it's the op take off the D part, just generate. That's right. <laughs> so um, so you, you gave me an interesting thought to think about. Should other nonprofits with similar missions want to merge with you? Yes. I, I'm always, we have take, we have, we have merged with a few smaller organizations. It's a good question. We've merged with a couple of smaller organizations and there is definitely synergy um, and there is economy of scale. This is important. When I was at United Cerebral Palsy and they're a wonderful organization. However, there's about 200 United Cerebral Palsies. They're separately incorporated entities. That means they have their separate financial statements, their audits, their 990s. They have their separate uh, bylaws. They also have a separate, each 200 CEOs, 200 CFOs, 200 ways of, of conducting business, 200 ways of buying insurance, 200 ways of doing all that stuff. I incorporated one, one nonprofit, 1501C3. And this nonprofit, what we have is a nonprofit that can that can adapt to everything. And also because of the economy of scale, we self-insure. Our insurance costs are much lower. We have staff where we can offer them a, a pretty competitive rate where they can, they can come on to Cigna or whatever our insurance is at the time, but we were actually self-funding it with a floor and a ceiling. So there's a lot of, um, a lot of help on that. We also have good, good, um, uh, 403B plans, and we cross-pollinate all of the people. So somebody in Utah might be an expert in head injury, and, and people in Austin, Texas might want to know more about it. So we'll have that person come to Texas and, and do cross-pollinization training. We have national conferences where we bring everybody together, and we all meet and talk about whatever the issues are, and we pre-establish that agenda ahead of time. Love it, love it, love it, love it, love it. So if um, somebody's in a small organization and they're thinking, gosh, this is too much, I need, I need a leg up, that would be a conversation that would, you would welcome. Is that, did I hear you right? 
Yes, and we, we've we've had that conversation with an, a nonprofit in New Mexico. We've had that conversation with a nonprofit in New Jersey and a nonprofit in Maryland. And all three of those organizations, all those execs stayed with us and they still maintained their status, and, but they lost their board. A couple of the board members came on our board, but they have now the ability to... Um, to 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 have a lot more capital in order to grow, and then we help them with certain you know finesses relative to uh, acquisitions and um, and uh, and and management uh, entities that they might have not had experienced at the same level of sophistication that we have. We have a CHRO, we have a CD, we have a Chief Development, Chief Compliance Officer. We have those kinds of folks. We have a CFO. We have all these folks that can kind of get more involved in what they need. Sure, and you have a lot of infrastructure that, that a lot of folks don't know how to create. And they might have a really good program or skill set, but not the ability to scale it and, and, and impact people's lives. You, um, you throw out the 403B. That's a unique type of program. It's, it's similar to 401, 401K but it's, it's, it's a program that's specifically for nonprofit employees, correct? Yes, and what we do that's a little different is we match it with 4%. So if you put in 4%, we put in 4%. So it encourages you to save. And when people leave, and they rarely do, but when people leave, they, they're able to take that and translate it into, a, into, a, into another uh, instrument, an IRA or some, something such as that, or put it into their other nonprofit. We do that through Lincoln Financial. Through a regular big company. I just wanted people to know that there was a different instrument. The four four three B is specifically for for your type of organization. Um, so so growing this that's a very intriguing proposition. Why don't you uh, come under our umbrella or just merge with us, which is really different because there are organizations that work independently underneath an umbrella like a committee. Um, when I was in Blacksburg, there was a group I work with that function under the Virginia Tech Foundation. And they, they did a specific function, that's all they did. So they never founded their own separate uh, 501c3. They just worked under this umbrella and it worked really good for everybody. It was founded after the massacre at Virginia Tech and they wanted to honor volunteers. And so that was a specific thing they did, which was of value, of course, to the university. But that didn't work. For, that's a good startup function for a lot of people. But you're talking about a wholly different thing of just folding your organization into the larger one so that you can actually get more done and take less, have less pressure on yourself. Is, is that right? Yes. And you don't, I mean, uh, you know, one of the problems that you have with boards and I see these with, the, with the, when we took over one of the, or we, when we merged with a smaller nonprofit, I saw this problem. The boards have problems realizing the difference between operations and governance. And <laughs> you think, and, <laughs> And, and sorry, the, I just seen that so much. I just, I'm sorry. It's, it's, a yeah. problem. it's not funny. Yeah. So, it, so it's, um, so when we, when we do take, when we do merge with someone and we, we will take one of their board members, we reeducate their board member about what the, what the role of the board member is. It's not to talk about, you know, the salary of somebody who reports to somebody who reports to the, to the, to the, to that director. So there's, it's, it creates a lot more, um, a lot more, um, um, education if you will and i also think that if they're struggling with finances it's yet it's 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 expensive to run you know because we're so large we have one cfo and we have an infrastructure with maybe 30 you know accountants that do receivables and payables and all that stuff and in this world of medicaid and in this world of billing it becomes a, 
a very complex situation. And we, we were able to, to, to silo it into situations where we can just do it no matter what we're in 10 states, no matter what state we're in. <clears throat> wow. That's, that's pretty powerful. So you, you founded this because there was a need and you had a niche that you wanted to follow that wasn't being met. You're, you're, you weren't able to do what you could do in your other organization. So you created your own pathway. Um, you're probably one of the three percenters that actually do something and survive and make it happen. So that's quite an accomplishment. 30 years ago, you did this. So what's changed in 30 years as far as organizations and, and how they run in, in this 501c3 world? We call nonprofit, which is really a stupid word, but that's what we call it. I think a lot of the, I think one of the, the biggest change for me and the most helpful was that that was absolutely the most wonderful thing that happened to, to, to me was that was what happened to everybody, technology. We're talking on apples right now. Um, the fact that we're able to manage things, I, I can do so much more with platforms. I, I pay a lot of money for some sophisticated platforms, whether it's to conduct time management for all of the staff, whether it's to look at, I have three people, I have, as I said, I have 5,500 people. I have three people that do my payroll. Mm. And in the beginning, I was writing my one right checks out and putting them in the mail and yeah, right. holding my breath and, and uh, that that <laughs> yeah, that's quite a difference. The same with with uh, most of the. And honestly, we'll give I'll give them a, a, a free commercial. In 1999, I wrote a grant and I got a meeting with a higher level person with Microsoft. And Microsoft gave us some money and they gave us some platforms and they gave us some software. And that was the first thing that really enabled us to really kick off a lot more stuff that we do and to create, we, we had, we finally had servers and we got more and more sophisticated, but I think technology, that's, that's a level playing field and it's a cliche. Everybody's heard. I also think that the work ethic uh, may not have changed, but how work is done has changed. People don't want to, um, you know, the, there's four in, in the, in my world, for the nonprofit world or whatever it's supposed to be. I learned that the four reasons that the people will work for you. One, they have to feel that they can control their environment. Two, they have to feel that they are valued. Three, they have to have their value recognized by their boss to others. And that's more prevalent now than I've ever seen before. And the fourth is money. But I think it, and I, and I rank them in that order. And now, especially now, you know, everyone talks about, uh, you know, um, the millennials, the big M word. I embrace millennials because in the 80s and the early 90s everyone was trying to make as much money as they could whatever they could to do it and they didn't care about anything except the money now i'm talking to millennials who actually want to make a difference they want to change um, and they want to have an effect on people's lives they want to make a difference and those people have a whole different attitude and they embrace working in an environment where they can actually make a difference in the lives of a person with a disability. Wow. I, when I hear you talk about it, I'm sure your passion is contagious within your organization. Um, there's, there's so much that happens from the leader outward um, that, that's so important because you, it's like a, a, an orchestra. What they see is what you get. And a conductor is, is thought of by non-musicians as a dictator. 
And I got to tell you, you got a little white stick and you're in front of union people, you can't make them do anything, but you can influence them. And so music happens when we influence people to make music. Otherwise, they're playing notes. And kind of what you what is underneath what you just described is the impact you have on the culture. And, and what you outline to me is what we teach. Those are principles. We have core values, which people write and put away. But principles are what we live by. And we make decisions by, and it's our it's our values in action, pretty much. So you've you've outlined here's the principles that we abide by and that you make decisions and the organization makes decisions by. So I see that principle-based organization as one of the anchors of why you're so successful. How do you see it? I, I agree with you hundred percent. I don't, I, I just, I was in South Carolina this morning and I, and, and the executive director of Columbia was driving me to the airport, barely making it. And uh, she was talking about how, you know, she was, you know, her relationship with Charleston, how she had to, trust the person who was the executive director of Charleston and she was at Columbia. And I told her, I said, Lindsay, the worst kind of control freak is a remote control freak. <laughs> you, you can't run. I can't run South Carolina from New Jersey. I can't run Utah from here. They, I have to empower them. I'm nothing more than an infrastructure. You put on that, you step on the gas, you can make it into a rocket ship. It can go way past Jupiter, but that's up to the person. If they succeed tremendously, it's up to them. If they fail, it's, to, it's, it's them. But I'm nothing more than a person that helps facilitate what they need to do. That's a good soundbite to highlight. Uh, we'll have this transcribed. It'll be on the website in a few days. But good. the worst kind of micromanagement is remote mi micromanagement? Worst, worst, the worst kind of control freak is a remote control freak. That's it, it's micromanagement, yeah. So, so let's talk about um, ma managing a team or leading a team. What's the difference and how do you, how do you empower your team? I, I, I set direction and course, but I have what we call, EM, our, our group calls it EMT, which is an executive management team. And that consists of all my C's and, and um, uh, some VPs. And we sit down, we meet on a quarterly basis um, away from phones and, and faxes and, 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 and internets and, and uh, iPhones are turned off. And all we do is talk about what, we, what, what, what our problems are. And everybody learns from everybody else. And everyone's a contributing member. And the person in charge of, 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 of fundraising has to be talking to this person talking about vacancies in their group homes. We has to be talking about the problem we're having with government of, uh, we're having a problem with, you know, some local authority in Texas, how all that stuff. And we all have to work collaboratively. And then once we kind of figure out how we're going to go, then we break up and then everybody does what they have to do. And then we come back again and we talk about what we need to, to talk about. Um, so that's the most, the most important uh, apart. They manage their own thing. And again, I'm, my job as the CEO is twofold, to provide as much information as I possibly can and to give them whatever resources they need in order to adequately do their, their job. And there's probably some cheerleading in there too. Yes, there's a lot of vision in there. Absolutely, because people sometimes get discouraged, but if we tell them you're on the right track, go for it. Because um, it's not a straight line. So that, to me, that summarizes how I define leadership, its influence. And pretty much you also said I'm creating the 
you're almost facilitating a process, really. You said, here's where we want to go, and then you, you get out of their way, and they're able to do their work. I find I do um, what I call a coaching clinic in corporate America and nonprofits, clergy, but people like at that, that management level, and they work with other people. I find that burnout happens a lot because they overfunction, they try to control too much, and they really misunderstand leadership. And so teaching people how to coach is really a, a, a way of teaching them how to be leaders like you just defined. So I find that, that um, a lot of people don't know how to lead, but I, I'm sure you set an example that people catch on to. Do you have to pull people aside often and say, you know, you don't get this, or can I help you figure this out because this isn't working? And how do you intervene with people who aren't quite making the grade or don't quite get it? Well, I, I try to let the leash out as far as I possibly can. But the more that there's issues, the more I pull the leash in. Um, I've always said that if you have to term anybody, if they're surprised, you're doing a bad job. Anytime anyone left my organization, um, they, um, it's true. Anytime anyone's left my organization, they pretty much know why. And they pretty much understand that I'm really kind of doing them a favor because they realize they just don't have the aptitude or the, or the stomach or the, or, the, or the gumption to do what's needed in order for them to function. But, you know, I trust, I always believe everybody's trying to do a good job. But um, Hugh, I think it was Lincoln who said, um, Lincoln said, only a fool trusts everyone or no one. Hmm. So, you know, there's something in between. Um, so I agree with that 100%. You know, I trust, you know, I trust you until, you, until I can't. And, you know, um, I can't go, but if, as I say, if the person, the person might need a little bit of coaching, the person might need some facilitation from other people or some other additional training, but I try to, to do whatever I can, but I have a small window and I, and I, you know, after three or four or five months, if they, they're not really figuring out, if they can't speak the basic language in several months, then they need to move to another country <laughs> that can understand their language, so to speak. Because if I can't, if they can't speak our vernacular and they can't get into what, what we're doing and this is not, and I explained to my execs the same thing. This is not a job. It is a lifestyle. It is a real, you are on 24 seven. We're providing care 24 hours a day, 365 days a week. You know, there's no snow day. There's, I'm constantly looking at the national weather to see if there's a hurricane, how that's gonna affect my houses in South Carolina, what's going on in Texas. But the people that are down there are, are figuring out how to deal with their local people as well. So it is a lifestyle. It's, 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 uh, it's more of a vocation actually than just an employment. And I think that if they don't look at it that way, it won't work. People show up for a paycheck, but they really perform at a higher level because of their personal fulfillment. And it sounds like you have people that are really called to this duty. Yes, 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 they have to be called. And if they're not called, it's not gonna work. Yeah, what you just described is very difficult for a lot of leaders to do the course correction and then say, it's just not working. And I'm surprised how many power leaders even don't want to hurt somebody's feelings, but they'll let them go on in a non-functioning status and let it do more and more damage thinking it's going to get better when they know they're not doing a good job. You know, they're not doing a good job. So why not just address it? And like you said, sometimes they're really happy because they know it's not working and they don't know how to get out of it. 
So any advice for people that are listening when they, they're struggling with this low performing or non-performing employee? There's two, th well, I started off by talking about how when you go ask people for money, realize you're asking the money because the money's not for you. It's for the people you support. If they're not doing, if the person who you, who's working with you is not doing a good job, you are not being a good steward of your own money, of their money. You are not being a steward of them. And you are not, you are actually not being prudent for the person that you support or the cause that you're supposed to work for. So whatever cause it is, I don't really care. If the person is not effective, you are taking donor money, government money, somebody's money, and you're paying them to, to not do a good job. You're actually squandering the money. And that is, that, that's not good stewardship in my opinion. It's not good stewardship. No, that's, that's the bottom line for me. We're, we're stewards of everything, especially in this 501c3, we're stewards of other people's money. And we're not earning it, um, and we're not putting it in our pocket. We're, we're, we are earning a, a, a rightful salary and compensation for the work we do. Um, you've given us a whole lot to think about. Before we, uh, I'm going to come up with a sponsor announcement and give you a final say. But before that, you've seen things happen over the last 30 years. What's in the future, both for your organization? Will this be a legacy that will continue? after you, but how will nonprofits change in the future? Or do you have any, any thoughts about that? And how will yours change? Well, I, 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 I've set this, the bylaws up and the, the even, I have it, it's very important, especially when you get older, to make sure you have a very strong secession plan. And in my secession plan and in my organization, there are people that are involved in the actual secession. And I honestly strongly support having a, 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 a very good key man insurance policy so that, 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 that when I'm not here, there's going to be, if I'm, there's some money that will help transition a new person. But my point is that I have it set up that they're not, it would be extremely difficult for them to sell the organization or move it into another place or have it become something else. This has been around for 30 years and it's my intent that this is going to be around for another hundred years as community options in the realms of nonprofits, how they're going to survive. I don't know. I know that, you know, it's interesting that people are generous in my opinion and people will help if they believe in your cause. But the other thing is I'm, I firmly believe this. No one gives a dollar to cancer. No one gives a dollar to, 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 to a blood drive. No one gives a dollar to a symphony. No one gives a dollar to community options. They give a dollar to the person who's asking them for it. It's you and the credibility of the person who's doing it that, that does it. And as long as we can keep on creating leaders in the nonprofit world who can actually be strong stewards and be, um, uh, be, be passionate down to the bottom of their heart that they want and believe the mission, then once they can continue to do that, then they're going to be able to be, uh, they're going to have this go on in perpetuity. Wow. Wow. I want to sign up. I just, um, I can see why you have good people. You're able to tell the story and to let your passion for what you're doing come through your story. And I think sometimes we tend to be a little heady or a little reluctant to tell people how we really feel when in fact, you're just very transparent. You're out there and you're not afraid to say what you want to say from your heart. But you're also, you've rehearsed this a bit. You're very articulate. 
about it. So you're, you practice speaking about, about these things often. And I, I think we don't do that enough as nonprofit leaders, do we? No, I think everybody needs an elevator speech, as, as the saying goes. And you need to give it. And you, and you need to give it often. Yeah, go and into elementary to school and tell them, hey, I want to talk to you. And they're going to say, how long is it going to take? Can you see how long you can hold their attention? <laughs> That's, exactly. exactly. You can go out to the world and, and do that again. So I'm going to talk about, we are able to do the work of Center Vision Leadership Foundation. We provide resources for nonprofits. Uh, and, and we're not consultants. We've redefined consulting to wayfinders. We have systems. We have skills. We help nonprofit leaders take their vision take their intellectual property, take their products and services, and put it into a system where they can have support, both to implement their programs and to fund their programs. Just because we have an idea, just because we're tax exempt, doesn't mean it's automatically gonna work. So we provide those systems at a cost that's appropriate for the size of the organization, and many of those are free. So we have an online community for community builders, and we have uh, a digital card. It's like an app for your smartphone. So if you uh, pick up your smartphone and you, you're going to text this number 64600 up there where the text number 64600 and down where the message is, put on your caps lock and put LDR, short for leader, LDR, and you send that. Pretty soon your, your phone will return another text with a link. And it says, welcome to the Center Vision Online Community for Community Builders. And you'll have all the resources in your hand. You can click on it and join the community. You can read Nonprofit Performance 360 Magazine. You can watch the interviews like this that we've collected over five years with thought leaders. There's learning opportunities. There's a blog. There's articles. There's lots, lots of stuff that's available. And then you can get your own easy card. For your organization and you can I'm using it with a symphony every donor's got this in their hand we can send them texts and say hey don't forget to get your tickets for the concert by the way we're having this gala ball to support the long-term vision of the Lynchburg Symphony Orchestra so click on it so everybody around me has their own easy card because it's a way for us today to use our technology like you spoke about Robert it, we use technology and it's easy. So it's easy card. So get your Center Vision easy card by texting the number 64600. And the, the message is LDR. And then just it'll come back to you and you can follow it from there. Because um, I'm going to show you a quick picture of it on my screen. And so if you're listening to this on the podcast, you can go to the to the page, uh, the nonprofit exchange, the nonprofitexchange.org and you'll see um, you'll see uh, this video and you'll see in this video I'll put a I'll put a screenshot up on the side this is a this is a, a computer version of the of the uh, the card it's in a long form that fits our smartphone it's the most amazing thing I've seen in technology and we're just beginning to scratch the surface so our sponsor for Center Vision is one of our sponsors today is Easy Card. So I want to encourage you to get the Center Vision Easy Card and then to get your own Easy Card because we need to stay in touch with our donors. They need to know what we're doing, what we've done with their money, and what's coming next. 
Our mistake is not telling people the important impact we're having in people's lives, using the dollars and good stewardship of those dollars that people have given us. So Robert, you've given us a lot of good stuff today, a lot of good sound bites, a lot of really mature wisdom. I, I'm, I don't know about you, I'm enjoying getting older because I've, I've learned a thing or two, mostly by the things I've done wrong, but also by associating with good people like you. So what thought would you like to leave people with or what challenge would you like to leave people with as we end up this really, really good interview? I just, uh, my challenge is that go find at least one person in the next week or two that you don't know, chat them up and tell them what your mission is. Robert Stack, thank you for sharing your wisdom and your experience and your thoughts with, uh, with nonprofit leaders everywhere. Thank you so much. Thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.